And I've taught you about this, how that in the Gospels we have Christ revealed to us with the work that he did when he was on the earth and his saving work that he did and carried out. And in Revelation, we have the, the revelation of what he's doing now, where we can't see him. He's not walking around here on earth. He's up there. And as he is establishing his kingdom and his reign, we get to see a window that John opened up for us as he was given visions of the things that are going on there. So um, John tells us from the start of his uh, book that there is a great blessing, as we saw, in um, reading and hearing and in uh, keeping the things that are given to us here in this book become a part of our lives as we learn about God and what he's doing, what he's like, what Christ is doing. Last week, we saw how John, in his opening greeting, expresses desire that the triune God would bless his people with grace and peace. Grace speaks of getting something good that you do not deserve, and peace speaks of not only the removal of hostilities that are, are turmoil, removal of turmoil in our life and that sort of thing, but also speaks of wholeness where you receive a, a fullness from God. He fills us up, as we saw, with all good things when He gives us peace. So everything from joy and that sort of thing, full of joy, to stuff like uh, righteousness or love or uh, knowledge of God or all of those things, he, He's promised that He's going to bring grace and peace. And so John says to, in his writing there, you know, to grace and peace to you. And he shows how it comes from the, the Trinity. No one but the Father, God the Father, and God the Spirit, as he does a different order than we usually do in, in this place for a reason, and God the Son are able to accomplish a blessing like that for us. So as Christ is the primary agent of our salvation, that's why John put him at the end of that triune uh, application there, he, is, he talked about how he's our prophet, priest, and king who makes us kings and priests to his God and Father and who reigns as our mediator and whose glory and dominion will be manifested. So now we're moving on in Revelation. We come to chapter 1, verse 9, going on to verse 20 today, where John, for our even greater encouragement, presents to us the vision that he received of Christ when he, John, was called to write this book. So this is sort of John's commission. And in that commission to write this book, he was uh, shown a vision of Christ. So listen as I read it to you. Our text again is Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And that's where we end the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Thanks be to God for his gracious word. We have here a revelation of the Son of God. May we be blessed as those who, who read it and hear it and keep it. Here we have John's commission, as I said to you, to write this book. And this commission comes not from the angel that we saw before that where. The Father gives it to the Son, the Son to the angel, the angel to John. That's what we see later on, that the angel shows him around and this sort of thing. But here the Son of God himself comes to John to, uh, to give him this commission to put in a book the things that he is giving him. So uh, see how John presents this to us. First of all, John identifies himself, and then he, it, he looks at the territory terrifying vision that he tells us of this terrifying vision that he saw of our exalted Lord. And then the third thing, John's description, we have John's description of the gracious care of our exalted Lord. So first, see how John speaks of himself and of his commission to write this book of Revelation. He speaks of himself in a very humble way as a brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He does not speak of himself as he might have as a leading apostle, one of the three that were especially near to Jesus, but rather as a fellow sufferer, one suffering and of, a, of a suffering and persecuted church. It is not a church that is characterized by exaltation at this time. But it is a church that is characterized by patience of people waiting for something, waiting for the manifestation of the glory that is to come, the manifestation of the sons of God, as it talks about in Romans 8, when they will be seen for who they are. This is not happening at this time. They are rather a people that are under reproach. One of the reasons that we have this book is to show us as God's people that in Christ's work, at this time, that we're not going to be the people that everyone's admiring. Everyone's looking at and saying, oh, wow, look, there are the people of God. It's going to often be the other way, and it often has been in history. And there should be no surprises because the book of Revelation lays out to us the kind of expectations that we can have. It doesn't give us false expectations. The Bible never does that. When Jesus says, you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, you're going to have to take up your cross, you're going to have a lot of tribulation if you follow me. He doesn't say, you follow me and you're not going to have any more problems anymore. Everything's going to be great. It's funny that some people will come and then they'll despair 
of the Christian religion and say that it's not true because they had all these trouble when they came to follow, tried to follow Christ. And uh, that's to be rather what we expect in this world. John, um, John might have mentioned as well that he was an apostle. When he, you know, he said that he didn't do that. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to do that. Paul often does that. And John himself does that in, in some of his books. But he didn't need to in this case because he's telling us about the commission that he received directly from the Lord, which is what an apostle does. The Lord, he, he sees the Lord, and then he tells, go, he's sent by the Lord, officially sent, to go and proclaim. So he's actually giving his commission of an apostolic work right here in what he's saying. He's going to tell us of the vision that he had from Christ and the commission that he had from him specifically to go. Now, I wonder if you... Then when John identifies himself as a um, brother and companion, I wonder if you are John's brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Are you among those who are willing to bear reproach for the Son of God? Are you one who only wants to have things go sweetly? And if God is not going to do that, then you're not going to be a companion in tribulation and suffering in association with a crucified Savior who is not regarded in this world? Are you among John's companions and brothers who are, who are, are, are you someone that is objecting to these things? Or are you manfully accepting the place of suffering that God has appointed for you? John describes something of his present situation even of suffering when he is given this vision. He was, he says, on the Isle of Patmos. Look at the text there. On the, Isle, on the Isle called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This was a remote island to which he had been banished. We're told from some histories, not from the word of God, we don't know for sure of it, but that uh, John, they actually tried to kill him and to, uh, they put him in, in oil, burning oil, and he didn't, didn't die. And so they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll send you off to Patmos and exile you. Uh, try to kill somebody and God doesn't want him to die, then they have a hard time. He was regarded, though, as unfit to be among men because of his association with Jesus Christ. You can't be among men. You, we want to kill you. We want to get rid of you. We want to send you off to this island and get you away from everybody because you're just going to ruin people. Yet, as God often does, he greatly used John. When he was on the Isle of Patmos. You can be sure that John prayed, but we have here a product of John when he was in exile. This book of Revelation, which has blessed the church for many, many years. And so uh, like you think about someone like John Bunyan, or you think about uh, Paul in his imprisonment. imprisonment. He, he wrote many of his letters that way. So you can't, as Paul says, the word of God is not bound. I might be in chains, but the word of God is never in chains. So John tells us that he received this revelation when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, what is this day that he calls the Lord's Day? Well, how do you learn the meaning of a word when you're looking at a word in you know, some ancient literature? How do you, if it's in a different language or that kind of thing, how do you learn the meaning of that word? You look to see how it was used by people that were living at that time. And how do we see consistently in the early church that the word or the term Lord's Day is used? It's always used to refer to the first day of the week. 
And sometimes they would distinguish it from the Jews' Sabbath that had been uh, that was on the seventh day of the week, and the Lord's Day that was on the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples to tell them the good news that his sacrifice had been accepted and that he was alive again with salvation for the nations and that they were to go and proclaim that message. It was a glorious thing that on the first day of the week that he came like Psalm 22 talks about and he met with his people and he told them what the victory and salvation. And then after that, he met again on the first day of the week and then Pentecost was on the first day of the week. He set apart the first day of the week and from that time on to this very day, Christians have observed the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath, as the Lord's Day. These very words, the Lord's Day, are a testimony here in our New Testament to the fact that the Lord still has a day that's set apart to Him. Sometimes people you will know, talk about the Lord's Day and people will say, oh, well, uh, Paul, Paul said that all days could be considered regarded alike, that there was no day that was different than the other. Well, Paul was talking about the days that were the Jewish Sabbaths, like a lot of people were still keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, all these different kind of days. He was talking about those days. He was obviously not talking about the day that every Christian was observing that was, was brought in when our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, the New Testament day that was observed. That's the one that's called the Lord's Day. If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? What is the Lord's Day? If it's not a day that is uniquely set apart to God. What about the Lord's Supper? We have Lord's Supper at church. Why is it called the Lord's Supper? Because it's different than the suppers that we eat every day at home. The Lord's Supper is one that uniquely belongs to Him. The Lord's Day, then, is a day that uniquely belongs to Him. It's used in exactly the same way. So John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's when he received the revelation. Now, what about this phrase, being in the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, it could mean different things. It could mean that John received, was receiving special revelation from God. He was in the Spirit as a prophet, receiving special revelation from God. But ordinarily, and I believe here, that it means that he was worshiping God in an ordinary way that we might worship God and should worship God on the Lord's Day. In other words, we're engaged in God's Word. We're engaged in prayers and praising Him. And the Holy Spirit is working with us. We're in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And that's something that, that we should desire. And the reason I say that that's so about John here is because if he's talking about receiving special revelation, it doesn't make sense. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was receiving special revelation. And then I received special revelation, which is basically what he'd be saying. He's saying, as I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in the ordinary way that you would be on the Lord's Day, then I heard this voice. Like I, I was interrupted almost. In, uh, it, was, it was obviously God's Spirit. But he, he got the, um, the, this, this vision that was, was given to him on the Lord's Day. So what is John told? Okay, oh, first I should say, what, the way he was interrupted, he heard a voice that was, was like a trumpet. So it's a stately voice. It was a voice that demanded his attention. It wasn't something you could just ignore. It was a voice that was, was, was calling out to him. And so he, he, you know, he, he was arrested by it, you might say. It demanded his attention. What is John told by that voice? He's told to write in a book the things that he is going to see and to send it to the seven churches that were nearest in proximity to him when he was on the Isle of Patmos. 
these seven churches are named in the order that a messenger who came and took the, the book from John after he had written it and then carried it, went on a boat, of course, from the island to get over to, uh, went over to the port at, where Ephesus was. And then the road there goes up like a horseshoe and map kind of, kind of like this around. And the different churches, the seven churches, would follow the road that the messenger would take. He would come first to, to Ephesus and then to Smyrna and then to Pergamos, then Thyatira, then Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. So the book of Revelation is written to these seven churches originally, but as I mentioned to you last week, does that, does that seem strange? This, this book with all this revelation about all these things that are so grand and, and glorious, why is it written to seven churches? It seems like it would be written to everybody. Because that's the way God has given his word always. Very often he writes to one church in a place. The letters in the Bible are to one church, like Ephesus. That was probably a presbytery. Or they're written to one individual, like Philemon or Timothy or something like that. But they're written in such a way with God's spirit working. And it is intended and understood that they would then be a blessing to all the people of God in all ages. That's how the scripture is given to us. And what it does is it makes us realize that God is intimately involved with us as individuals. So just as he had his care and concern for these seven churches, he has that same care and concern for us today at Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church or wherever we are. Okay, so now John is going to tell us what he saw when he turned to see the voice, as he says. Here we have the wonderful, terrifying vision that John had of the majesty of God's Son. I call it wonderful, terrifying, because though terrifying, you see how John reacted in, in a few minutes, it is a wonderful, edifying display of the glory of the glorious Lord and Savior. Very helpful for our faith. It's like one of those things where you see something and, and you're terrified, and then, you know, you... you, you you, you kind of recover and then you say, Lord, please do that again. <laughs> because you want to see, you want to see the glory. Like that's how Moses was. You know, he, he trembled at Mount Sinai when, the, when God revealed himself. And he comes and says, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see more of your glory. Okay, that, that's, that's the kind of thing that we have. It's a wonderful, terrifying thing. In verses 12 and 13, John tells us what he saw when he turned to look at the source of the voice. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. It's inter interesting he mentions that first. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now this is probably not Jesus incarnate, but rather a vision intended to manifest certain aspects of his divine nature as the Son of God. Keep in mind that he will always have a human body that was raised from the dead and that was glorified. The very same body he had here is the body, it was raised up out of the grave and he still has that body. And uh, if, if someone saw him, you know, there would be a recognition. But this describes him in a way that he was seen in the Old Testament before he had acquired an actual human flesh, before the, the word had become flesh. He is one like the Son of Man. That's how he's described in the Old Testament. Now, certainly many of the visions of him in Revelation are most certainly just that. 
visions of him. For example, when he appears as a lamb, does Jesus really look like a lamb? No, he has a human body that has been raised and exalted. It's a vision of the Son of God who is crucified for his people. It's not what he really looks like, the lamb. These are visions that John is seeing. So uh, it's an interesting thing to consider. But what, what, with this particular vision, he has stars in his hand. And we can tell it's a vision because a few minutes later, he's touching John. He's holding these stars. And then he's touching John with that same right hand. And then he has the stars again. And he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And, and so, again, these are visions of things. The stuff of a vision not a visitation of the Son of God incarnate. We will merely note this juncture that besides the seven stars in his hands is this, are the seven lampstands. He tells us that the lampstands are churches and the stars, they're angels. And clearly these are symbols of churches and angels, not actual ones. Jesus very often speaks this way, and we need to get that. For example, when he says, I am the door, we shouldn't say, oh, Jesus said, I am the door. That means he turned into a, a, a wooden door with hinges and a doorknob and all these things on it. He said, I'm the door. No, it doesn't mean that. Or when he says, um, in, in the Lord's Supper, you know, this is my body given for you. It doesn't mean that that bread turned into human flesh. He's giving us something that, that represents his flesh. So uh, when he says that the churches are lampstands, it's not that the church of Pergamos turned into a lampstand and it's, got, you know, it's made out of gold or something. And they're, oh, that's the church of Pergamos there. No, it represents those churches. And it's the same thing with the, uh, with the angels. They didn't turn into stars. They're represented by these stars that he's holding in his hand. Again, we got to get our heads into this because when we come to Revelation, we're dealing with visions. And people always want to think that this is something that we're going to see. John saw a vision of something that we're going to see. What we're going to see is the outworking of the things that are revealed in these visions. We're not necessarily going to see some giant angel standing with one foot in the water and one on the land. That, those are visions that are given. So, okay, let's look at how John describes this one who is like the Son of Man. It's a glorious vision. He's dressed in a long robe down to his feet with a golden sash. We could call this a stately appearance. And people debate about, you know, commentators debate, oh, these are priestly clothes. Someone said, no, 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 the priest had a, a woven sash, not a golden band. That's more like a king. And other people, well, no, yeah, it's a king. And, no, and they go back and forth about it. I think what we need to say is that what we see with this garment, the long robe and the, the, the golden sash around the chest, that this is showing dignity. That's what we need to see. High dignity. Someone that is in an exalted position. In verse 14 says that his head and hair are white like wool, as white as snow. So this whiteness, what does it represent? Things like Wisdom, purity, it represents deity sometimes. He appears ancient, but he doesn't appear diminished in vigor or decrepit in any way. Ancient 
as one who is strong and ancient at the same time. He is said also in verse 14 to have eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes that are lively. Eyes that penetrate, cut through, that see things. That, uh, eyes that search you out instantly so that you know that this one, I don't have any secrets from, he knows everything about me. He's not one whose judgment anyone would ever question when he says, you have done this against me. Oh, no, I didn't do that again. You don't say that to him. No, he's got eyes of fire, flames of fire. It's, he's not somebody that you come back on like that. You know that he knows and he's searching you out and it's true and you can't avoid it. He has gravitas. He has incontestable authority. You don't go and say, oh, well, who are you to say? Not, not to this one. When you see this one, no one responds like that at all. They fall down on their face, whoever they are. Verse 15 describes his feet as like fine brass refined in a furnace. And there's talk about what kind of metal it is and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't really matter. The point is clear that he is shown to be one who stands firm. You don't go and bump him off or make him move over. He is solid and his steps are sure and certain and nobody, if he goes, you cannot turn him this way or that way. His footsteps are very sure and solid, not uncertain. It would not even come in anyone's mind to try to topple him. You wouldn't even think of that as something that could be possible. His voice is described as like the sound of many waters. Powerful, dominant. Not the kind that you try to negotiate with. Rather the kind whose words are sure and final. The stars that are in his right hand show that those stars are under his protection as well as under his control. More about that in a few minutes. From his mouth is the sharp two-edged sword. Well, we run into this in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? We've seen it in the book of Hebrews. And what does it talk about, that sharp two-edged sword? What does it say it does? It pierces. It pierces to the depths of the soul and the heart. It lays bare what is concealed. We go about concealing things because we're ashamed. And here, this sword, the Word of God, it cuts through. It gets right. His words cut through. Whenever the day of judgment comes and people stand before Christ, everything will be laid bare. Nothing will be, everything will be uncovered. When, when, when he comes, he speaks to the core of our being. The word of God cuts to the heart. You remember when the Holy Spirit was working, when Peter preached at Pentecost, and it says they were cut to their heart when he said, you by wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory. And those in whom the Spirit worked, the word of God cut. Finally, his entire countenance is overwhelming. John says that it is like the sun shining in its strength. And its strength at noonday, when the sun's the strongest, he is in inaccessible light. He's one that you, you want to look at, but you can't look at. You can't, there, there's, there's too much brightness. His glory is impossible not to see, but it's impossible to continue to gaze at at the same time. 
that, that's kind of the way holiness is too, isn't it? With the Lord our God. Like we want to see Him, but we can't bear at the same time. We, we, we're attracted, and yet we're, we're repulsed at the same time. This light, this, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant light. It takes John a while to describe what he saw. But realize that the description takes a little while, but when John saw this, he saw it all at once. And it was overwhelming. John was awestruck. His words in verse 17 are these. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is what happens to those who see the glorious revealing of the Son of God. It was that way with Abraham. It was that way with Moses. It was that way with Isaiah. Woe is me, I am undone, he said. I am a man of unclean lips. It was that way with Daniel. He went down as a dead man. They were overwhelmed with his holiness. They were overwhelmed on account of their own sin, which was so clear to them, even though they were holy men, all of them. They could see his purity and holiness more clearly than ever, and this exposed their own defilement. They were all like dead men. It is marvelous to realize that such appearings also, do you realize when the Son of God appears like this, He's actually lowering Himself. Because we couldn't even bear, we couldn't even conceive or, 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 or see Him at all if He did not come way down to our level to give us these revelations. And yet to us, they're overwhelming. And that's even for the godly apostle John. He comes, he lowers himself to our capacity. John had the great benefit though. Like I say, it was something that was very attractive to him. And at the same time, it was terrifying. My brothers and sisters, do you see something of the wonderful, terrible majesty of our God? Of his glory? Do you see that he is one who ought never to be trifled with? Do you trifle with him? You don't see him. You see the way you need to see his, his glory. Do you see how inappropriate it is to question him or doubt him? Do you see his awesome majesty that causes heaven and earth to flee away? Woe to those who do not obey him. To those who do not repent of their sin. If, if you sin, do you say, oh well, it doesn't matter. You don't know him. You don't know him. Their portion will be with the devil in the lake of fire. Even John, the holy apostle, who called himself the apostle that Jesus loved and who leaned on his breast at the supper, was a dead man before his glorious majesty. Our majestic Lord's response to John in his terror is marvelous. It's, it's, it's wonderful. See how he reaches out to John with tenderness and compassion. I've just said things about the terrifying side of it, right? And you say, whoa, but what does he do? What does the Son of God do? He reaches out with his hand and he touches John. He says, do not be afraid. He lays hold of him with his right hand. What a welcome kindness from this august personage. How John must have felt Vigor coming back into the cold death that he had before his presence as that hand touched him and those words reached his ears. 
the Lord tells John why he does not need to be afraid. He gives him reasons. From the middle of verse 17, he says, I am the first and the last. As the first and the last, it shows that he's the sovereign Lord who started everything that was started and who brings everything to its place in the end, to its destiny. In other words, he has all authority, like he said when he was here, all authority in heaven and earth. Everything is in his hands. So, no, okay, John says, yeah, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> From this vision, like, oh, I knew that more than I ever knew it before, that, yeah, you, you're the first and the last. I, 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 was, I was completely mindful of that. But the Lord says those words to prepare for these words, verse 18. And these words are remarkable to come from this one that John has seen. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. This one could be dead. That's what he says. I am the one who am alive and was dead. He shows John that he is the mediator, the Lord of glory, who came in human flesh to die. John, of course, knew all about that. <laughs> he wrote one of the Gospels. He knew all about his atoning death and his sacrifice. And all Jesus had to say is, I was dead and now I'm alive. I hope you know about this too, about his death in his life, because Jesus died to pay for our sins. He paid to take the penalty that that same one, the Son of God, would, would bring on those who cross him. I said he's not the kind of person that you can dismiss what he says, that you can just disobey. If you do, it doesn't go well at all. And you can see that so clearly. But then he comes and says, I died. The same one that is like that is the one who died. If you repent and turn to him for mercy, then he will fully pardon you. And what else? He adds, and I have the keys of Hades and death. As the one alive forevermore, he will never have to die again. He has those keys in his hand forever to release from death those who are appointed to death because of sin, because of his work that he did when he was here, because he died. What he has done secures salvation to his people forever and ever. It does not get undone. And as the one with the keys of Hades and death, he declares that he has authority to release people from their bondage to death for sin and that, that had been pronounced upon them. As God said, all have sinned. Let it sink in. This glorious, terrifying one with his fiery eyes and his countenance shining like the sun he is the one who died for our sins. He is the one and rose again for our justification. This glorious one is the one who releases us from death. If he saves you, no one can take you out of his hand. No one. All of that pure, glorious, holy majesty <coughs> is directed to your salvation. It is the same glorious one who died who tells John to write this epistle. He says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. 
He wants these things written in a book <coughs> so his people can benefit from them. He wants the entire revelation about himself reigning for his people until he has fully established his kingdom and brought about their full salvation. He wants that written about so that they won't think that things have gone wrong somehow. He wants them to know what he is doing for them is those who are living in a confusing and hostile world. Then he brings everything together. Now you already know this because I've already mentioned it. But in verse 20, the last verse in the chapter, he explains that the lampstand that the lampstands that he is with and in the vision are the seven churches and that the stars are that are in his right hand are the angels of those churches. There's a lot of discussion and debate about what he means by the angels. The word angel means messenger. And some say that it speaks of angels who minister to us from the unseen world that we see in Revelation. They're there, the different angels. It's a pleasant thought, you know, the angel ministering to each of the churches. Some people say each church has an angel, and we know that the angels are with us when we worship. It seems that maybe even plural angels. But others point out that in speaking of the church's failings, it's not likely that you'd be talking to the angels about that. The angels, the holy angels do not sin. It's more likely that it's talking to the leadership in the church, like your pastor or, or whatever. Sometimes the word angel is used that way. It means messenger. It's used of church leaders. And then others say, well, you know, neither one of those really seems to fit very well. Maybe it's talking about the sort of the spirit of the congregation. And so it's kind of to the whole congregation. You can kind of tell sometimes that where people's theology is with the different things that come up. Some of them say, oh, this is a bishop and a single bishop. And some of them say, no, it's the elders. And some of them say, you know, you get, you get different kinds of things like that. But I'm not sure that it really matters that much because, you know, the thing that, if we get into all that focus, we miss the wonderful point here. What is the wonderful point here? That this glorious one, that John has seen is intimately concerned with each church and those who minister to them, whether angels or men, however they may minister. He is engaged with each one. This, is, this one who is too holy and too awesome for us to look upon is the very same one that tenderly shepherds us and who does all that needs to be done to bring us to glory. He is capable of bringing us to glory. And we see here that he is committed to bringing us to glory. We are in his tender care. He, each church, each messenger held in his hand, each church, he is among them. These seven, you could have had a whole lot more in that room, but it would be too much to see if you had all the churches in the world could be there Every single one he is just as much engaged with, working in to bring about his sovereign purposes. He knows what they're doing that's wrong. He knows what they're doing that's right. And he's working in them to bring about his uh, saving purposes in each one. Everything that happens in this world that can seem so chaotic is actually not chaotic at all. It is the unfolding of his plan that he is bringing about, that he has promised to his people, 
just as he has always done. He's always told us that what he's going to do, and he always accomplishes it, but the way that he does it is often very surprising to us in the way we think it's going to be a much more of a straight line kind of thing, but it's not. So let us give diligent heed as we look at Revelation to what is revealed to us as we move forward in this book. It's from this holy, majestic Lord to us, from this one who has hair as white as snow and who has his hand upon us, who died and now lives forevermore, that we might live also, the one who has the keys of death in Hades. We are in his sovereign hands, who, has, who is the first and the last. Please stand and let's give thanks and pray to him. O oh Lord our God, how thankful we are for this revelation that you gave to your servant John when he was on the Isle of Patmos in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We thank you that you came to him and you gave him this vision that he was able to record these things as he was commanded to do for our sake. We thank you that he saw your glory, Lord Jesus, as the Son of God, that he saw the majesty and the, something that made him fall on his face before you. And yet at the same time, he saw your tender compassion as you reached out to him and told him that you are showing that you are the one that no one can resist, that no one can go against, no one can, can oppose. And yet you're getting ready to show in this book that you're going to do a whole lot of things that are like letting, letting demons loose and things like that in the earth. All kinds of things. Raising up leaders that will nearly destroy the church and destroy your witnesses so the world rejoices that they're gone. All, all kinds of things that are going to be done. And we pray, Lord, that in engaging in this book, that we would get a, real, a more realistic view of things. That we wouldn't think that you are kind of weak and that somebody was getting advantage of you and sort of overcoming you. You are not that way at all. You're not that way at all. And at the same time, that we would not think that you somehow didn't care and that you know, you're just kind of avoiding and just letting things go on however they would. That you are involved with each of these stars, each of these churches. You know, the, the, the elders here, we're, we're in Jesus' hand. Each one of us is. And parents, they can be looked at as stars too with their children. You said that you would gently lead those that are with young. They're in your hands. And every individual is in your hands. And the church as a whole is in your hands. And there are people that are hypocrites who are going to be cast out of the church. And there are other ones that are overcomers. And even if the church itself is no more, those people will be blessed and they'll receive it because they're in your hand. And nothing can destroy them. Nothing can take them out of your hand. Oh, Lord, give us a confidence from these visions and who you are. Help us not to go around as if we have a weak Savior. Help us to go around with full trust and confidence in who you are and in what you're doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.